Hello and welcome to the MicroSamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Listen in as we hear from key thought leaders in research science and medicine testify to the powers of microsampling in their industry. Hello and welcome to another MicroSamplify podcast. We recently spoke to Jenny Royal, PhD, the co-director and co-founder of a company called Recario. And Jenny is also a managing partner of a patient engagement and research company called Medipace. Both companies focus on linking science and technology with patients, but just do this in different ways. Recario is a service provider that helps pharmaceutical companies and clinical research organizations, CROs, implement effective research and clinical trials. Recario specializes in the regulated environments of clinical trials, healthcare, medical devices, and the underlying science. They provide services to support remote or decentralized clinical trials by assisting with trial design, ethics submission, patient engagement, and layperson communications, medical science, pharmacovigilance, data analysis, regulatory, regulatory report writing, amongst other services. Well, that's a lot, lot of uh, services. Medipace provides strategic patient centricity, consulting to pharma companies, patient engagement in things like drug development, technologies, care pathways, as well as patient research to identify and plug care gaps. On the medical device side, Dr. Royal has worked with Mitra Devices and VAMS microsampling technology from Neoterix to offer remote blood sampling to trial patients. Hello, Dr. Royal. Welcome to the Microsamplify podcast from Neoterix. Hello, James. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Thank you. I know that after earning your PhD in pharmacology, you spent many years working in all phases of clinical development and patient-focused research, and that a primary element of your work is delivering patient-centered solutions. Can you discuss your experiences in providing patient-centric solutions and describe what those solutions include? Yes, yeah, certainly. It's probably easier to start with just a few examples so you can see the sort of breadth that we've ended up doing. Brilliant. The first example is probably best to be a system that I created called Proact. And what Proact did, it's it emerged because working in very early phase trials, there's such a, a huge learning phase in clinical development. And it's very difficult to answer questions such as, what's the burden our molecule is having? What are the daily realities of actually being in this trial? Which bits of the trial are easy or hard? What are the benefits of the, the people taking the drug see? And the reason for that is there wasn't a compliant way just to gather their experiences. Now, you can go outside, but if your trial is a novel drug, what you need is to hear from the very first patients taking your drug what their experiences are. And that's what PROACT gave. It gave a way for the participants in the trial to compliantly connect with their site and also compliantly for the sponsors, the pharma companies, to hear directly from the participants in their trial what the burdens are, what their perceived benefits are, 
And we got gold dust, like formulation changes and the taste of things that reminded them of adverse events and all of this sort of stuff in there. And for the, the trick was to get it to work for everybody. And from the patients and participants perspective, they got better communication with their site. They also got within study feedback on how the study's going. So nothing that undermines the study itself. But for example, if you present interim results at a conference, the participants got to thank you. This is the difference that you are helping make, which for certain conditions such as end-stage cancer and other conditions that have are life-limiting, if you wait till the end of the study and then write a layperson summary at the same time as a clinical study report that is a year later, you can quite often miss the chance. You just miss the chance to say thank you. And that's felt by you, but it's also felt by the families and the communities around. And is that what you want to do? So that was the first, that's one example of it. We also did video supported consent to change the consent process. That was eight, nine years ago now, yeah. which now is normal. But back then it was just this radical new thing that just makes sense mm. to make it easier. Um, the nephro-oncology study that we did, the in-home study that uh, helped shape up, that was um, at-home sampling to improve the renal monitoring in oncology patients um, because many people have both renal disease and cancer, but there aren't that many cancer treatment options approved for people with renal disease because people don't get in the studies. People don't get in the studies because you can't monitor it properly. Yeah. You can't monitor it properly because you need to be in clinic. So this was, can we monitor it better with people engaged and working from home? And that's still ongoing. And then, of course, there's the cytokine work that we did with uh, Mitra. Um, so they're examples. And in terms of experiences, I'd say overall, it's now a lot easier to do than it was. Yep. Ten years ago, it's people have switched on. They know about it. It's no longer alien to them. It should, all being logical, be normal by now. Mm. Everyone. And it isn't. Yeah. And so certainly from what I've experienced and what I've seen in other people where it has worked, it's worked in a specific situation, in a specific case. And that tends to be because there is a person in that that can see what all the ramifications are of home sampling. Because people tend to think of it as a swap in, swap out, a clinic sample for a home sample. And unfortunately, it isn't. It has ripples and ramifications that affect the healthcare culture, the role of patients. They affect so many things, which is one of the reasons I think, one of many, but one of the reasons I think that it hasn't gone beyond these little bits yet, because everyone's currently, they look at their bit and yeah. try to prove their bit. And until somebody can use method and system to look across, so it wins for everybody, it's going to be a bit of a slow process. Since the onset of the coronavirus pandemic, the concept of decentralised virtual clinical trials has become a reality and also a necessity for many organisations. 
you have experience and expertise in designing clinical trials and including those that are decentralized and off-site as well. Can you please tell us more about your experiences in this area and what you've learned? Yeah, actually, the, the pandemic is a perfect example, isn't it? We need to understand what's valued. People need, you need to address a need that they value because was that technology there before? That assay might not have been, but was the ability to sample from home there before? Yes. Was the capability there before? Might not have been pieced together like that? Yes. But as well as the pull from the technology and the innovation, you needed a great big kick for people to see the need. And unfortunately, it was the horror of a pandemic that's given the kick in this time. Certainly from a study design perspective, if we look at how standard study designs evolve in a pharma company, and the, the ones that are most adaptive and change the most are the earlier phase ones, so they'll be a good example. The standard approach to simplify it down is you have your molecule, that you have designed to hit the target very well that's been identified. You've got all your data around your molecule. You do your translation work to mitigate risks and, and outline your risks and get your, your first dose schedule so that you can go into your first into human study and you write your study design concept. So not your protocol yet, but your study design concept, your experiment according to all of that science. And then you ask for key opinion leaders, clinicians, their input on it, and you hone it and you refine it. It's great, but if we're looking at pull and kick, where people now are trying to slot in things like patient-centric sampling or home sampling, is after that stage, they're doing the protocol and they're saying pragmatically, should I swap this sample for this one? Could they do this in the home or could they come in? And what that means is you are not getting any main pull. You're not really getting any main kick. The decisions are effectively a cost-based decision and a decision based on, well, I've heard that it might help recruitment for this or it'll look good for this. They're not major drivers. You need numbers. You need facts. And a cost for swapping in here and here is unlikely to be enough of a driver change to make that happen. If you go back a step to study design concept, or even better to your target product profile or target value profile right at the start, and instead of just looking at the science of it, the clinical science of it, you map out the landscape. You get an entirely different approach to how you're doing it. And that's where the value comes in. So I'd like to learn a little bit more now about why you decided to co-found your company, Ricario, um, as well as heading up the company Medipace. And I believe Ricario serves many different types of companies and customers looking for help with studies and trials. And Medipace helps pharma engage with patients, which is very much what we've just been talking about. Can you describe the different types of customers you serve and explain how you adapt your expertise to their needs? Oh, right. So Recario actually emerged because we were at that time I was working in academia as one of the leaders for a research group. And I kept getting asked questions from the rare disease world. And it was generally when people 
they had all the, the great ideas, they had the willing people, but they were stuck. Whether they had a need they didn't know how to address, or they had a research question they couldn't design a trial, or they had a great study design but they didn't know how to analyze it, or they just needed medical writing support because they couldn't explain like hardcore genomics to the general public. There was usually something. And one of the things that my background gave was this really broad spread of experiences. And it meant that for these people, I could simplify the question down by looking at it in multiple different ways and just say, you need to do this and then do it for them. And so that's why I ended up setting Recario, because nobody else seemed to be doing that. They seemed to be serving people by reapplying the same service model to different situations. Whereas Recario does it differently. It listens to the problem and question at hand and then pulls from that broad experience to say, around your question, what's the simplest, easiest, best way to address that, and then make it happen. And because of those bespoke solutions and because we're small, it means we can be cost effective doing that and taking people from whether it's the labs into clinic, whether it's a pharmacovigilance issue that they, they're struggling with engagement with, whether it's a trial design they need writing, whether it's just a simple blog they want writing on something that's quite scientific, whatever it is, we take that specific thing, we can look around it and create a specific solution that just works. So for a carrier, we tend to have um, consortia, charities, nonprofit. We also have startup pharma as well as established pharma that we serve. Medipace came later because I linked up some old friends because Recario, when it started, it had at its core, as will always be for me, I want to make people feel better and have better quality of life. And in the medicine world, that's patients and families. Um, normally, plus the other people trying to serve them and their frustrations. But for doing the patient engagement work efficiently and well, you actually need quite a broad skill set because you need people that can do the focus groups, the ad boards, the facilitation, the engagement, the co-creation. You also need people that can do patient preference studies, research to fill care gaps. And you need people that can go into pharma and say, well, if you want to engage well, this is how systematically and strategically you build it into your development programme so that it blends with the other things that you already do. That's a lot for a small company like Recario to do. And also it's a very different client base because even though logically they overlap, in terms of delivery of a service, they don't tend to yet. So Medipace is actually a group of us that have a blend of skills that can do all of that, no matter what the question that comes in. And Recario very, it links and they help each other, but it very much focuses on more of the um, bespoke problem solving rather than the big pieces of patient research. And I have to confess in my mind, just in my mind, the, the future of standard monitoring is probably people being able to get the result there and then in their own home so they can action it quickly and get help when they need it or monitor it and know they're all right or yep. be able to spot trends. But we always have to innovate and there are always better biomarkers and there's always a better way. That is not going to be done in point of care devices. Yeah. That's going to be done with things like the Mitra tips, 
with things where you develop the assays in the labs and you prove the benefit and the worth. And then either, if that's okay, perfect. If it needs to be a faster, well, then they go there. While the whole field is being pushed on further, but point of care is unlikely to push on the biological science side of it yeah. as fast, because yeah. that's just not the way that you would design the assays. Yeah, and it's really fascinating because yeah. it's it's using things like artificial intelligence to be able to to do that pattern recognition, and actually mm-hmm. a lot of that has actually already been invented, such as you know search, search engine searches and and bringing in big data to uh, to understand patterns in noise such that yeah so that you can you can link disparate pieces of technology and bring the the data together to make something significant. It's really fascinating, it's mm-hmm. really exciting kind of future, isn't it? So it yeah, is. yeah. So, so talking about the future, how do you think remote microsampling and remote specialty specimen collection devices facilitate design and evolution of virtual trends? And do you think that most clinical trials will shift to an off-site or um, decentralised model? Or do you think that there will always be room for a hybrid that offers people sort of an on-site component as well as off-site? So do you think do you think eventually everything, in a, in a sense, is going to move to the home, you know, looking at, at the sort of middle future, not distant, but middle future? Or do you think there will always be a component where where, where a patient will feel more comfortable about going to, to site? Um, well, this is me you're talking to. I think it depends on the question, of course. <laughs> so there are, I mean, there was, there's a paper out, oh gosh, when was it? It wasn't that long ago, but they compared um, the telehealth and at home. This is in standard of care, not trials. Telehealth and at home versus in clinic. And they have different profiles of benefits and different profiles of of preference. So telehealth and at-home care all linked together. It gives far more individualized care. It gives a far more immediate response and immediate care. It's usually works out cheaper or preferable, more so for the participant than the healthcare professional, but a little bit of both, especially when you think how overworked these are. I think it was like 40-odd percent here saving versus seven here. But when done well, you got a little bit. But face-to-face in clinic was so much better for people that had um, low self-care ability or people that had really life-changing discussions that needed to be happened or big strategic care decisions. Do they go in the trial or not? for something like COPD or cancer or, you know, a really big decision. Do they drop standard of care and swap across to this? The reassurance of having that conversation face to face and the um, body language and emotional support in that was incredibly valuable. So I think that it depends on people's ability to self-care but as we already know, clinical trials, that screening already happens. I mean, people are only recruited into trials on a very rough assessment from the clinicians to go, well, are they likely to be able to comply with the protocol? And if the answer to that is dodgy or no, well, they're screened out quietly anyway. 
So for a trial perspective, I don't think that's a main thing. I think it comes to, down to the amount of face-to-face -face support people will need to get back from the trial, the care they feel they need to be able to go on. So if it's something like uh, a rare condition where, yes, people need the care, but the impact of travelling on them, if it's 300 miles away versus the benefit back doesn't add up, you're going to go totally remote. You're going to go totally remote. If it's something that is a lower value, so you just need something that's actionable there and then, you're feeding in data, you're getting your drug tweaked, you already know about it, you're probably going to go virtual virtual as well because it's going to be individualised, it's going to be fast acting, they're going to be getting what they need. If it's something where people need to come in or they need intensive scans or they need you know, something that's really far more um, invasive, they need to discuss through the finer points, they need that sitting time, which is very hard to do and even in telehealth, the sitting quiet time where you, the clinician either walks out and then comes back in a little bit later or they just sit silently while someone's puzzling it over. That's far easier to do face to face than when you've got somebody on the other end of the screen kind of waiting. A, a screen conversation is far more ongoing to two way. To end the call, you then have to phone back. You can't pop out and pop back in and do it. For that, I can see it needs to be in. Um, so I think there's place for everything. I also think there's a place for satellite sites. And those satellite sites don't necessarily have to be vans that go around or the GPs or other local hospitals. They could be some of the shops mm. that are now free. Set those up because there are a lot of cultures where people do not want someone from healthcare coming into their own house. Thank you very much. People do not want the testing in their own house. Thank you very much. Mm. And decentralized trials have, there's a myth currently that they increase the diversity in trials. And I'm sure it can but I haven't seen any concrete data where it's done it on its own. It's usually, again, it needs that bigger picture to say, well, what will people need? And it's not about catering to every single person. It's about knowing where the choice points are that will make the biggest difference. And in that case, in this choice point, is it worthwhile having it so that they have something in the center of this town, this town and this town, and people travel shorter distances if they don't want it in their home? or at home, rather than clinic as an option. Mm. It, it, there's, I think, again, it comes back to the research option. I think there's room for all. Yeah. What I would love, absolutely love to see, is that home microsampling is seen as as valid starting point as the current standard of care clinic sampling. Mm. So they start equal and the choice is made on the need and the question, not as currently happens, you've got standard of care and you have to really argue me to change it to this one. That, mm. That's not helpful to anyone. But and we'll get there. Yeah. We I, see, get I, there. See, 
Yeah, it's quite interesting because there's actually a paper, isn't there, um, by AstraZeneca that got published, I think it was last year, which is actually entitled Giving Patients a Choice, discussing that very same thing about giving giving options and then allowing the, the patients then to be able to uh, to choose, you know, what it is that, the, that they want to do. And a really interesting point you've just raised about making it easy for people to actually access that that test, that service, whatever it is, and, you know, using empty shops. And and, and what's really interesting is, is of course, we the pandemic people have now gotten used to that kind of thing going to exactly. a car park in the middle of nowhere to go and give a swab or or um and there's a there's a really interesting study that, that uh, happened in the US uh, where um where where people were um asked to give um blood samples um for uh, serology studies and and they they went to the, the likes of local supermarkets where there was a station um where where where, where that uh, that sample can be can be uh, collected um even, this has been Go even at its most simple if you want to do a test kit pick up a test kit for coronavirus you pop to the local pharmacy and you get one yeah you're getting human interaction really handy all you'd have to do is buddy up with a pharmacy chain and you could have all of that and if you needed a little bit more face-to-face -face description well why can't the pharmacist do it they don't have to go into clinic for it but again, it's about designing around what people need rather than what is standard of care. Your expertise in all, in all these areas has been absolutely fascinating. And it's, been, it's always lovely to talk to you, uh, Dr. Royal. Um, and so obviously you've got your, your, your two companies. Where can people get in touch to find out a little bit more about uh, Recario and Medipace? Uh, so people can visit the websites. They're, they are imagined to be called recario.com or medipace.com. So if you type those in, then they'll pop out and Google for you. Fantastic. I'm sure we'll be able to put that in the <laughs> in the in the um the trans the, the, the transcript of this uh, of this podcast as well. So thanks again for discussing your, your work and and uh, and your insight, your your um precious insight into clinical trials and research. We wish you yourself and your colleagues at Recario and Medipace much success with your clinical trial support services. And also, thanks to our audience for listening to this episode of the Microsamplify podcast, a partner to the microsampling blog from Neoterics. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs>